intense, <laughs> driven, bright. His wall could easily have been filled with credentials, the educational awards, the community accomplishments. It was the end result of doing everything right, everything expected of him. An achiever? <laughs> Without question, from his earliest days, he was that. His pedigree? Almost unmatched. Likeable? Uh, not so much. Driven by goals, he, he turned a deaf ear to the humanity that he pursued. They threatened what he believed, what everyone should believe. And so the cries of the pursued, their, their pains and their, their call for mercy, just ignored, easily and quickly dismissed. Because in keeping with the man, compassion was for the weak and the uncommitted, and, and Saul would never be accused of any of that. Someone you'd want for a friend? Not, not likely, unless you had the same view of the world as, as he did, because life was far too serious for small talk and small friendships, especially for any less committed than he. So he had no time to invest in anyone or anything other than 100% dedication to what needed to be done. He, he was driven to do what others wouldn't do. He was driven to do what was right. He was driven by his belief in a dot every I, cross every T, God that he understood him to be. And this was a man that once Sabbath was done, he spent his time alone, burying his, his nose in Scripture and studying the ancient text. Discipline? Absolutely, yes. Committed? Yes. Zealous for God as he knew him to be? Yes, yes, and yes. He was all of that and more. And far removed from any of that? Any hint of happiness and joy, just, just a man that was driven until he was stopped in his tracks. When everything literally came to a knocked off his perch stop, when the th all the things he understood went dark, just blindly dark. He had no reference points. He had no sight lines to make sense of, of where he was where his life had led and, and where his life would lead from this point on. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in the same sort of places. When life is going along, it's all good. Everything is, is running as it should. Doing things that are, are good. Just things that consume our attention. Some of them very good, like family and all the things that we try to balance that come with that or, or chasing a career and, and trying to, to make ourselves solidified in those things. All good, nothing, nothing wrong with any of that. When we're especially lucky, pursuing a career that, that gives us purpose and meaning, great stuff. Or, or things like the round robin of, of kids' activities, the never-ending never cycle of drama and sports and, and dance and all the things that just continue to go on continuous repeat. They're exhausting, but they're worth every minute of it. And then interrupting all that, the life-changing event that we never saw 
coming. Not necessarily destructive, though those times can occur as well. But just something that stops us. Just stops us in our track to, to actually see what we fail to see. We've been too busy to see or too unconcerned to see. But, but things that stop us. And in Saul's case, it was a blinding, light-filled encounter that thrust him into a period of life-changing darkness. <laughs> it's, it's actually ironic because when we think of darkness and light coexisting, we see them as polar opposites, but not always. But darkness is the place we usually want to avoid, we want to run from, so we will be able to see more clearly. But, but sometimes it's the dark that allows us to see what we've too long ignored that the things that preoccupy us, the, the things that we focused on, have blinded us to the things that we really have needed to see, that we have chosen not to see. And in that, coming to the realization that in some ways, even though we've thought we've been in the light, we've been walking in darkness for a long time, didn't even know it. And in Saul's case, this, this light from heaven revelation ushered in three days of darkness. We aren't told what transpired during that time but you can be certain lots did first there was his life-changing encounter with the living Christ and that must have shaken him to his very core discovering that this that this one that he had sought to destroy this one was the one foretold by the prophets the one for whom he had been searching all his life and now to find crucified but undeniably alive. God in flesh. Darkness gave him time to think on that, to dwell on that. And both the joy of discovery and without question there would have been the undeniable guilt for all the things that he had done. For only days before this man was the one who was described as breathing out threats and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. We're told that in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. But the overwhelming theme of this darkness that Paul experienced, Saul experienced, was Grace. Jesus coming to him when he wasn't deserving to be come to and finding out that he was loved and he was forgiven and that God in Jesus was claiming him as his child. And that meant the past was changed in an instant. And yet, for Paul, what was the new that he was stepping into? How would he ever fit into a world of believers that he had persecuted? And truth is, as he sat in the darkness, couldn't help but think, but how was he to fit anywhere? Because for the blind, which he now was, that made side of the road begging. And for a fiercely independent man, that meant crippling dependency. <laughs> One that is, was in charge of his life, or so he thought, and all of a sudden everything stopped. And yet it was in the darkness that Paul was being transformed, his life changed. Different, but in many ways, the same. Because Paul's, Saul's conversion didn't change his personality. It changed his understanding. 
changing his understanding of God, changing his understanding of Jesus, changing his understanding of himself. And again, coming out of the darkness, a new man. The driven gone, but make no mistake, he was just as passionate as he had ever been. He was just redirected. Love replacing judgment. Hope replacing threat. Being driven, being replaced by joy. All because of a life and change in changing encounter. A life-changing encounter that we're told in Philippians 4, 3, that his name, and that he now knew it, his name was in the book of life. It's the book of life that we're told of in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, where we're told about heaven, and it says, nothing unclean, nothing unclean will ever enter, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Or we're told in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But Paul's joy of discovery? My my name is in the book. My name's in the book. Whatever else can be said of me, nothing better than that. My overwhelming joy, I'm in the book. And that means I'll live forever with Christ. You know, as we go through this, this portion this morning, there is no more important question that can be asked of you and I than, than that. Is your name in the book? Do you know without any shadow of a doubt that you have been changed and been forgiven and been made new by Jesus and that your name literally has been changed? Made new by Jesus, accepted by by God because of Jesus, sins forgiven because of Jesus, a life forever because of Jesus. That my name's in the book. And speaking from that transformation, knowing that he had been changed at the very core of who he was and what his destiny was, Paul writes this, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness your, or your reasonableness be made known to, all, to everyone, to all men. The Lord is near. So don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. He writes those in Philippians 4, verses 4 to 8. So so what would Paul have us understand? Well, first understand this. First, that we are to be a people of joy. Because as I've said, we're in the book. A people of joy, not wear it in public joy, but joy that comes from in, from within. Not happiness that is in something that we've achieved or in a gift that we've been given, but far greater than that, because that happiness of, of just situational joy, happiness is situational. 
and trying to hold on to happiness, those, those moments that come into our life that make us happy, trying to hold on to those is like trying to hold water in our hands. We can hold it and we've got it as long as it will stay in our hands, but quickly and immediately it's gone. But joy, joy isn't situational. Joy is positional. Because we're told in Scripture that joy is in the Lord, that it's in Him. It's been something that we've been given because it's part of God Himself. It's part of God's nature. Psalm 16, verse 11, and 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 6, speak of the joy that is we have when we are in His presence and the joy of His presence. Nehemiah 8 10 tells us tells of the joy of the Lord is our strength it's notice it doesn't say that that's joy from the Lord it says it's joy that we're of the Lord it's of him it's his presence and Jesus echoes this theme in in Matthew and John in John 15 11 and 17 13 it says that joy is something that is given it is deposited in us, that it is coming from innermost being, uh, living water. Recently, I, I purchased a, a patio heater, and, and the heater has within it a remote control. And the thing about the remote control is this, is that I can control everything of the heater by this, this tab, by this remote. But, but the remote has a tab that we have to pull the tab to release the power of the battery. The power is all there, but until the tab is pulled, it's not activated. It's just expensive decoration until the power is operational. And God is telling us, when it comes to joy, you have been given it. Now we are to live in his joy. But as we see, oftentimes things come in our life, and Paul speaks to it, is there are things that, that get in the way of that. And, and Paul, as we'll see later, will talk about you know, joy is something that's given, but it's also a choice that we make, that we choose to make it operational in our life. And it's often something that we fail to enter into because we let things block that because we, we don't make the choice to reposition ourselves. We see the beginnings of that in, in uh, chapter 4 when, when Paul references two ladies, Euodia uh, and Syntyche. And he talks, one of, the, one of the joy blockers are disagreements that divide. And Euodia uh, and Syntyche, it's often called Euodius and Sotachi, were in disagreement. And they let that disagreement linger and, they, and grow. They damaged themselves and others were being damaged in the same process because it was leaking out into others as well. We do that. We harbor offense. We hold on to it. We nurse it. It's an action that we won't let go of, a forgiveness that we will not give. And Paul's comments to them and to us is deal with it. Address it. Because as long as it stays residing in our lives, we are not living in the Lord. We are maybe in the Lord, but we're not living with the power that is in us of in the Lord, where all actions and, 
Uh, all talk and no actions. And if we are disciples of Jesus, then we're to live as he's called us to live. So we are to put faith into action and let the Holy Spirit course through God's life through our, our lives. His joy in us and through us. And again, what, what Jesus says, he says, He who believes in me, Jesus said, from his innermost being will spring rivers of living water. John 7, verses 38. The second joy killer, the first one are disagreements to divide. The second joy killer are deceitful perspectives that, that allow us just to mire down in worry. Focusing on all the things that might happen, the, the ground that might collapse, the relationship that might fall, the calamity that might come. All the things that just feed and cultivate worry in our lives. And Paul would say those are deceitful perspectives. They're, they're perspectives that are taking your attention into things that should not have your attention. You're fixing your attention in the wrong place. They're things over which we have no control. And Paul's direction to us is refocus where you need to look. Because fixed on what you are now seeing, what you're now dwelling on, you are not living in the Lord. Oh, you're living, but you're not in the Lord. Understand. Understanding the Lord is understanding who we serve. He's understanding that he is Lord over all things over the things that surround and over the things that enter into our lives, the things that may come. He's the Lord who invites us to come into his presence as his child, one that he wants to give to us bountifully. So the first thing that, that often can short, shortchange our joy is disagreements that divide. The second is deceitful perspectives that we allow and hold on to. And the third joy killer are destructive attitudes that feed on wrong things. They're the negatives and the critiques, the, the we liked it better wins, the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket negatives. And the thing is about those attitudes, they leak out. We don't contain them. We don't have them as sort of uh, hermetically sealed realities. They, they leak. And they destroy and they infect as we let those attitudes take up resident in our lives. And Paul's response to that would be that as long as we carry those poisons inside us, we are not living in the Lord. We are living a divided, unsubmitted life that God calls us, give it to me and give those things to me. And Paul knew what living with those joy killers was like because he had lived that way for a long time that once described him. And they had been his native language. But it was language that God changed, replacing them for joy. And that's why in verse 4 he says, again, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. We need to understand that Paul isn't offering this as a suggestion or, or uh, proposing principles that would help us live life well. Rather, when he says rejoice in the Lord, he is actually stating a command. And it's a command unlike any of the other commands that are given in Scripture that appear in this form. Nowhere does God say, do not murder and, and in case you missed it, you're not supposed to murder. Nowhere does he say, 
you're, you're not supposed to commit adultery. No, and then repeat, no time, no place, no way, no adultery. He doesn't do it. Why? Because he knows the command is clear, and that is something that he's called us to live differently. But when it comes to joy, we fail to understand that that's that's actually a command. How can we possibly be commanded to live out joy? (laughs) And surely that's got to be something that happens to me before it can actually live in me. (laughs) And Paul's response to that, God's response to that, no, you, you fail to understand. Joy has been planted in us. The Holy Spirit has come, and his presence means joy. His presence gives the power to live in joy. And so Paul is saying, live out of what is within. Pull that tab that is blocking that place. Pull it off and start living in his power. And Paul is saying, it's a command because God's giving you the power to live that way. It's not sort of manufacturing my attitudes. It's saying, rely on the gift that God has given. And it's interesting if you consider when Paul speaks about be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he, he says the characteristics, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy. In other words, he front loads it and saying you're to be a people that that's to be characteristic of your life. Not because of circumstance, because you're in a position. It's positioned in you. Now live from that place. It's a place of joy. Li- uh, rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say it again, rejoice. So the question that is asked and should be asked of you and I and others that don't believe in Jesus should be asking is, are, why are they a people of joy? Why are they a people that can live above the circumstance, not denying, but they have something qualitatively that is different, people who radiate joy? And the first reason is very simple. Why? Because Jesus has given us a new and a changed life. And sometimes we who have been Christians for a while, we have forgotten what that really means because we haven't fully apprehended, comprehended what we have been saved from. From the wreckage and breakage that surrounds, from the things that would wreak havoc and destroy And when we fail to consider the things that we have left behind or that we've not stepped into, it's easy for our sense of joy to be muted. But God says, no, understand the darkness of what it is, not for living there, but for you to understand what you've been given. But our lives are also to be characterized by joy because a changed life is always to be a life-changing joy. It's something that we grow into, we choose. And in this, be clear. God does not give you and I a personality exclusion. Sorry, that's just not me. That's just not how I I do life. He he doesn't give us a situational path. Sure, once once these things I'm dealing with, once they're gone, then yeah, then I can start living in, in joy. And he said, no, no. God's command is, you're to live in joy. It's not based on your personality. It's based on your choice to, again, choose who you will believe, that joy, God is a joy giver. It's something chosen, not felt. 
And yet, uh, emotions tell me that's not true. That, that can't be true. I've got to feel it in order to do it. But God tells me that I am to choose to live by his truth to be filled or to keep being filled with the Spirit. And from that, the fruits of the Spirit will come. And chief among them, as I just said, will be joy. That's why the psalmist can say, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I will give thanks to him. Go through whatever life brings, but there comes to the place I'm going to resolve that he is actually my strength and my source. So, is this to say that I'm to feel joy for all the things that press in on my life? That I'm to smile through the storm and sing through the turbulence? And yet, Scripture is incredibly realistic. Jesus says this, because he reminds us and he says, look, you live in tribulation. There will come suffering. There will t- come times that are hard. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And he calls us to, again to come back to what Isaiah the prophet would say in chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. James Stockdale was a a prisoner of war for eight years during the Vietnam War. And one day when he was asked how he survived, he observed, well, I I never lost faith in the end of the story. I, I never doubted that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end. And I would turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I I would not change. And when he was further asked, he said, well, who didn't make it out? And he responded, oh, that's, that's easy. The optimists. They were the ones who said, we'll be out by Christmas, or we'll be out by Easter. And then it would be Christmas again. And he comments, and they died of a, a broken heart. See, they put their joy, their hope, in faith that trouble will be over, our difficulty will be gone, or be non-existent. And yet, as Christians, we aren't promised a pain-free, trouble-free life. And again, Jesus tells us in John 16, 33, that we will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. His point is, is that we're not called to have a blind joy. We're not, we're not called to have a, a Pollyanna faith. We're called to have a redirected faith, placing our faith in the one who writes our story. Paul pointing us to change where we look, wanting us to see that there's a greater truth than the things that come at us or the things that threaten to overwhelm us. And that is this, that the Lord is near. I think Paul is is saying a couple of things there. I think he's saying, first of all, that the Lord's return is near. He's near as he's claimed you for his child. He's near when all pain and, and sickness and harm will finally be destroyed. He is near when he will usher in his glorious kingdom and Give us all the joy that that means and all the joy that that has for us. 
God's nearness of so much greater, so much greater ahead. But if we limit it just to that, that God's, that Jesus is coming again and he's coming soon, we don't know when that will be, but he's also near to us in the reality of the daily, that we are supposed to so live with that in mind. We are to live with his nearness as the kids drive you to distraction, as the workplace threatens to put you under, as friends betray and as situations overwhelm. In those places, the Lord is near. He's, he's not distant. He's near to hold and to empower and to sustain. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 6 when he says, don't worry about anything. But in everything by prayer and some translations and supplications, present it to God. Give it to God who says, I've got it. I'll hold it. I'll carry it. Why do you spin? Why do you worry? I'm the Lord. You're my child. I've got it. Peace beyond understanding. Peace that says there's peace in the storm, in the midst of the storm. Peace of a heart at rest. And peace not merely because worry is gone, but peace because our focus has changed. Instead of looking around at COVID, instead of looking at that that relationship that isn't working, instead of looking at that workplace that's uncertain, I'm near. God is near. And when that happens, joy joy abounds because our minds are centered on Jesus. And the psalmist captures the thought again when he says in 1611, in your presence, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So, what is God telling us? That we're to live in the presence and the power of Jesus. Not in some monastic retreat as the pressures come and as the turmoil gets loud. At work, at home, at school, God's got it. But the truth of it is, he's only got what we're willing to give. To carry our despair when we don't know which way to go. To hold our pain when at times it feels there's overwhelming pain that we cannot carry. Giving him our second nature that will will orchestrate our life and say, no, no. Places where God says, give it to me because I will carry it all. And in its place, God's direction, focus on the true, focused on the honorable, focus on the just and the pure and the lovely and the commendable. Not, not as Pollyanna, but because that's who I am and that's what I give. And then watch as your life and mine become lives on show. Living with joy that Paul speaks of as he says in uh, chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16, be blameless and pure, live as children of God, faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among you whom you shine like stars in the universe. So hold firmly the message of life. This is the life 
that Paul commands us to live, a life of joy to rejoice, our eyes fixed on Jesus, lives of joy, lives of peace, all possible for those who have received new life in Christ. Sins forgiven because of the shed blood of Jesus. And and the great news of joy, that this life can be yours as well, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, no matter how lost you become, all possible because of the forgiving blood of Jesus. Offered to you, if you will come and confess your sins and accept the forgiveness that is offered in his blood. Just by asking. Just by calling out. Because he can only, Jesus will only take what we choose to give. So do it now in the awareness that the Lord is near. Near to hear what you sincerely ask of him. And near as our soon returning Lord and King. And that is the fullness of joy that you and I may know. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you that you are the giver of new life. Thank you that we can look and say, my name is in the book. I will live with you forever. I am a child of the King. Not because of things I've earned, not because of a performance I've done, but because you gave to me your forgiveness through the blood of Christ on the cross. And I just thank you. We thank you. And we pray this in the name of the Lord. Amen. I would just entreat you this morning as I close. Don't linger. Don't wait. The Lord is offering his new life to you this morning. Pull the tab and activate his power in your life. Blessings to you.